What does an artist most desire? And what does a creative mind, even before money, even before fame? An audience. An audience of one will suffice for some, and yet for others. An audience of numbers will aspiration demand. Fame is a bee. It has a song. It has a sting. Ah, too. It has a wing. Emily Dickinson was ambitious. Without a doubt, she had her eyes set on a goal. She imagined a vast audience for her masterpieces, 1,789 poems. But unfortunately, that audience did not exist yet, not in her lifetime, not in the 1800s. So, what is an ambitious woman to do during a time when women with ambitions are a taboo? Emily chose to write. She chose to stay up into the late hours of the night while her family slept. A still volcano, life that flickered in the night. Some mornings, her father would even allow her to sleep in, knowing she had a habit for exercising her intellect in the midnight hours. On those mornings, she was relieved of her responsibilities to set the table and to cook breakfast. She no doubt felt these poems teeming under the surface of her daily life. There is evidence, actually, on scraps of paper, that inspiration could strike Emily at any moment. The corners of letters, the folded lips of envelopes. She once even jotted down a poem inside of a chocolate wrapper because no other paper was at hand. The compulsion to create must have felt like lava teeming under the surface of a volcano. And to deny the world the chance to share in those treasures, that would be a travesty. And so, Emily wrote and sculpted and perfected these poems. And when dozens of poems had reached a point of razor-sharp perfection, she felt compelled to save them. In 1858, at 27 years old, she began to transcribe her finished poems into little hand-bound booklets called fascicles, with the bindings sewn together by white thread. By 1865, at the age of 35, she had transcribed 800 original poems into these fascicles. No one ever saw them, not one account of someone stumbling on these booklets or her showing them to anyone, not while she was alive. These precious booklets stayed under lock and key in Emily's bedroom drawer, as if she were writing secret messages to a foreign country. But what country? She knew she was not meant for her time. Hers was a country in the future. Her birthright was the 20th century. And now even the 21st century, as she continues to be one of the most famous and recognizable poets in the world. She once wrote, This is my letter to the world, 
that never wrote to me, the simple news that nature told with tender majesty. Her message is committed to hands I cannot see. For love of her, sweet countrymen, judge tenderly of me. As we explored in the last episode, every one of her greatest poems begins with a metaphor, something that twists logic or expectations or even time. This one begins too plainly at first glance, until we consider that she is not looking at her time and her world. She is looking at ours. We are the world that never wrote to her. And how could we? She can write to us, but we can never write to her. Her letter to the world is everything she has left us. Her poems, her myth, her personal letters, and this enigma that surrounds her. The future is her birthright, and we are her countrymen. Welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. On this episode, we will be exploring the enigma of Emily Dickinson. If you have not yet listened to part one, I recommend you pause this episode and scroll down to number 18 in the podcast feed, entitled The Enigma of Emily Dickinson, part one. Listen to that first, then come back. Once you do, everything will make much more sense. Part one lays the foundation for who Emily was during her formative years, her education, her bold stand against Puritanism, and it also explores the visionary brilliance she brings to the written word. In this episode, things are going to get a bit wild, but they will make much more sense with that foundation in mind. Side note. Throughout the episode, there will be moments where you will be hearing Emily's poems. The art of poetry is best appreciated in two ways, audibly and visually. This episode will take care of the audible part, but you should give a moment to look at the poems as well. For that, I've made a handy guide on my website, which shows the full poems in their order of appearance, so you can appreciate reading them too. Head over to mjdorian.com forward slash Emily. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N dot com forward slash E-M-I-L-Y. And check that out. Back to the episode. Today, we will be exploring Emily's inner world and the select few people she let into that inner world often showing them her deepest affection and vulnerability through letters. We will also explore the illness that drove her into seclusion for 25 years. And finally, the key element to all of her creativity, solitude. Let's begin. 
Chapter 1 An Unaccustomed Wine I bring an unaccustomed wine to lips long parching next to mine and summon them to drink. Crackling with fever they essay, I turn my brimming eyes away and come next hour to look. The hands still hug the tardy glass, the lips I would have cooled, alas, are so superfluous cold. I would as soon attempt to warm the bosoms where the frost has lain ages beneath the mold. Some other thirsty there may be to whom this would have pointed me had it remained to speak. And so I always bear the cup, if, haply, mine may be the drop, some pilgrim thirst to slake, if, haply, any say to me, unto the little unto me, when I at last awake. In the last episode, we came to know Emily mainly through her poems. These perfectly sculpted works of verse have been an effective window into her distinct genius, but they only give us half the picture, half of who she was as a thinker and as a person. They give us a piece of Emily that is most refined, in a sense, as part of her letter to the world. Her poems are the first impression she would like us to have of her. Scholars of her work don't have an autobiography to go by. She didn't write seven books about her life like Salvador Dali did. For Emily, we have to piece together an understanding of her life and her world through letters. That old romantic way of communicating that predates emails, text messages, and even telephones. In the 1800s, if you wanted to talk to an old friend who lived miles away, you'd send a letter in the post. And after a few days, they'd receive it, open it excitedly, sit down with some tea to read it, and write a letter back to you. Which would then take a few days, as you'd wait with anticipation. You can imagine the excitement that would bubble up if you were waiting for a letter from someone you felt affection for. And there is this feeling that opening the envelope and seeing the handwriting, it's a unique act of intimacy between two people over vast distances. Secrets can be shared, deep affections and vulnerabilities, which may be frowned upon in polite society. Emily's friends say that receiving one of her letters was an event in itself. You knew the contents would be personal, poetic, and filled with meaning. You would steal yourself away to a private corner of your home and open the envelope with anticipation. Quite often, Emily would use every inch of paper as a canvas for her art. She would write miniature poems in the margins, along hidden folds of paper, and invent single-line verses for lips of envelopes. On the inside flap of one envelope, she wrote, In this short life, that only lasts an hour, how much, how little, is within our power. There are dozens like this, but as I was exploring these charming envelope poems, I stumbled on something even more remarkable. At first, you read her cursive handwriting and things make sense, 
but occasionally you trip on a moment where two or three words are stacked on top of one another, or a moment where a hard line is placed between two words, like but and though. And you start to wonder, what is happening here? Did Emily invent a new form of poetry, where words violate the standard convention of horizontal structure? For example, on the envelope poem just mentioned, in this short life that only lasts an hour, how much, how little, is within our power. On the handwritten version, the word only is stacked on top of the word merely. You can see a scan of that envelope on mjdorian.com forward slash Emily. So at first glance, I read it as, in this short life that only merely lasts an hour, that doesn't sound bad, but then I counted the syllables per line. If we use only merely, that is 12 syllables on the first line and 10 on the second. That's odd, knowing Emily's propensity for adhering to meter, as we covered in episode 18. Then I saw this happening in several other poems on these envelopes, words stacked on top of each other, which, if read together, completely violate the structure, or perhaps create a new abstract poem. And then I realized. These poems Emily jotted down on envelopes are works in progress. They are incomplete. She is still deciding which of these two or three stacked words to use. These are handwritten examples of her creative process. It shows that in the process of writing, she used stacks of words in their own columns as a way to visualize the final result. Eventually, she'd decide upon the perfect match. To her, these little scraps of paper were probably disposable. To us, they are invaluable. In our endeavor to understand the creative process, these little scraps of paper are priceless. The envelope poems often give us two or three variations of the same poem, or in the case of a literal reading, they also give us a strange and abstract version, as if the verses were written on a shattered mirror. For example, I'll read the poem as old as woe, in the way it is written on the envelope. Bear in mind that's woe as in W-O-E. As old as woe, how old is that? Some 18,000 years, as old as bliss, joy, how old is that, or the age of that, they are of equal years. Together chiefest, they chiefly are found, but this seldom side by side. From neither of them, though he try, can, may, human nature hide. Okay, kind of odd, right? As you might see on the raw scan of the envelope I included on the site, the words bliss and joy are stacked. So she is debating whether to choose one or the other. Then she uses the word or to distinguish between two versions of the same phrase, those being how old is that or the age of that. Then the words chiefest and chiefly are stacked. So she is debating those two then a hard line between but and though. So again, those are up for debate. Now, let's imagine we are Emily, and we will read this poem in two different ways, by walking the path she walked in making these decisions. Version one, as old as woe, how old is that? 
some 18,000 years, as old as bliss, how old is that? They are of equal years. Together chiefest they are found, but seldom, side by side, from neither of them, though he try, can human nature hide. Version 2. As old as woe, how old is that? Some 18,000 years. As old as joy, the age of that, they are of equal years. Together chiefly they are found, though seldom side by side. From neither of them, though he try, may human nature hide. We are hearing Emily's editing process. This is equivalent to being able to listen in as Beethoven tries two different versions of Furelis. Nein, das ist nicht gut. These envelope poems are invaluable as documents of the creative process. We all too often read, watch, or listen to a work of creativity without knowing the labor that brought it to fruition. We see the final poem set in stone. These little scraps of paper, they give us a rare glimpse of Emily as we crouch in the open door to her room and watch her at her writing table. Chapter 2. The Letter Poem Receiving a letter from Emily was an event, mainly because she poured so much thought into them. It was part of the culture of the 1800s, but it was also a reflection of her reclusiveness. A letter is an act of intimacy between two souls separated by time and distance. Yet, on the other hand, it is an act of intimacy where the rules of engagement are clear and safe. Emily could express herself in the written word in her most articulate manner without concern for social etiquette or immediate judgment. She could be playful, sensual, or even stern and combative. Another reason we look to her letters is that in them she often writes full poems, poems which she does not include in her fascicles. So, if you received a letter from Emily, which included a poem, she likely wrote that poem for you. Is there any way a letter can be more intimate than that? This also means that scholars have had to go on wild scavenger hunts to collect and verify all the letters she sent to friends, family, and potential lovers during her life. Her closest friend, Susan Gilbert, said that Emily had invented 
and mastered a new art form, the letter poem. And there are hundreds of these letter poems. Reading them proves that she wasn't an antisocial misanthrope who lacked emotional intelligence. We can throw that theory out the window. It proves the contrary. She extends herself into the lives of others and feels those connections deeply. Her letters often prove that she has a keen understanding for social conventions and subtly adjusts her manner of writing depending on who her audience is. An audience of one will suffice for some. For example, if she were writing to a stranger she admired, she would be cordial, charming, and self-effacing. If she were writing to her brother, she would be casual, witty, and expressive. If she were writing to a romantic interest, she would be playful, poetic, and intimate. And in some instances, we can even see the progression in a relationship, where her letters start proper and courtly, and transition to personal and prosaic. We can see this most clearly in her letters to Thomas Wentworth Higginson and Susan Gilbert, both of whom started as strangers in Emily's universe and gradually developed their own close bonds with her, being invited into her soul's society, each becoming a captive audience of one. Thomas Wentworth Higginson was a distinguished man who no doubt caught the attention of Emily Dickinson for his intelligence and compassion. He was a Civil War soldier, fighting for the North, who served as a colonel of the 1st South Carolina Volunteers, a Union army composed of escaped slaves. But in addition to his anti-slavery sentiment, he was a vocal advocate for women's autonomy and their right to vote. These traits, no doubt, gave him a certain admirable distinction in Emily's eyes. The opportunity to contact him came when Higginson wrote an article for a local paper, The Atlantic Monthly. The article was titled, Letter to a Young Contributor. In it, Higginson presents himself as a literary critic for the paper, encouraging readers, specifically women, who have an ambition to be writers, to send him samples of their work. Although Higginson was not a poet, he was a well-educated critic and an accomplished author who wrote over 20 books. On April 15, 1862, Emily works up the courage to send Higginson a letter. She writes, Mr. Higginson, are you too deeply occupied to say if my verse is alive? The mind is so near itself, it cannot see distinctly, and I have none to ask. Should you think it breathed, and had you the leisure to tell me, I should feel quick gratitude. If I make the mistake that you dared to tell me, would give me sincere honor toward you. I enclose my name, asking you, if you please, sir, to tell me what is true, that you will not betray me. It is needless to ask, since honor is its own pawn. E. Dickinson Along with this enigmatic letter, Emily includes four poems and her signature on a separate piece of paper inside of an envelope of its own. Yeah, she didn't sign the letter 
Instead, she signed a separate piece of paper and put it in a smaller envelope inside of the larger envelope. That's why she mentions, I enclose my name. Why did she do that? We don't know. Perhaps she didn't want Higginson to see her distinguished family name and judge her work with bias. Or she thought the mystery might engage him to write back. In the book, The Life of Emily Dickinson, the author, Richard Sewell, states, One wonders, too, about Emily's diffidence. She was 31. She had written hundreds of poems. The fascicles show, perhaps, that she knew herself to be master of more than the isolated lyric. Although, why she did not send Higginson a complete fascicle as a demonstration of her organizing power is a mystery. Two editors had already inquired about her poems. When she wrote, I have none to ask, she was not quite telling the truth. She had already asked Sue's opinion during the previous summer. Most striking of all is the spareness of the letter, six sentences, with not a word to give this busy man of affairs the kind of leads one would normally look for in such an introductory letter." Unquote. No doubt this strange letter piqued Higginson's interest. He even spoke about that first impression thirty years later. So he read the poems and wrote back to her at once. Now, here is where we run into some trouble. The same trouble countless biographers of Emily Dickinson run into. Emily asked her sister, Lavinia, to burn all of her correspondences when she died. So, we do not have Mr. Higginson's response. But based on Emily's next letter to him, we can assume a few things were said. For one, Higginson responded to her first letter with some critiques of Emily's poems. In her follow-up letter, she refers to this as surgery he performed on her work. Based on her responses, we can also assume in that letter he asks her age, how many poems she has written, what books she has read, and if she can send more poems. Here are some excerpts from Emily's response. Her second letter to Higginson. Mr. Higginson, your kindness claimed earlier gratitude, but I was ill and write today from my pillow. Thank you for the surgery. It was not so painful as I supposed. I bring you others, as you ask, though they might not differ. While my thought is undressed, I can make the distinction, but when I put them in the gown, they look alike and numb. You asked how old I was. I made no verse, but one or two, until this winter, sir. I had a terror since September. I could tell to none. And so I sing, as the boy does by the burying ground, because I am afraid. You ask of my companions, hills, sir, and the sundown, and a dog, large as myself, that my father bought me. They are better than beings, because they know, but do not tell. And the noise in the pool at noon excels my piano. 
I have a brother and sister. My mother does not care for thought, and father, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do. He buys me many books, but begs me not to read them, because he fears they joggle the mind. They are religious, except me, and address an eclipse every morning, whom they call their father. But I fear my story fatigues you. I would like to learn. Could you tell me how to grow, or is it unconveyed, like melody or witchcraft? Two editors of journals came to my father's house this winter, and asked me for my mind. And when I asked them why, they said I was penurious, and they would use it for the world. I could not weigh myself. Myself, my size felt small. To me, I read your chapters in the Atlantic. And experienced honor for you. I was sure you would not reject a confiding question. Is this, sir, what you asked me to tell you? Your friend, E. Dickinson. Can anyone have written a more puzzling response? She answers the questions without actually answering the questions. In later years, Higginson remembered the effect of this letter, saying that she was evasive with a naive skill such as the most experienced and worldly coquette might envy. He chooses a curious word to describe her: coquette. Which is a word of French origin that means a woman who is a deliberate flirt, who knows how to flatter and manipulate men with her charms to get what she wants. When Higginson asks how old she is and how many poems she has written, Emily responds, "You asked how old I was. I made no verse, but one or two, until this winter, sir." Okay, she is within her rights to be evasive about her age, but what about the lie concerning her poetry? She seems to be playing a character of a sweet and inexperienced girl, just venturing into her first forays in verse. But why? Is she trying to guarantee Higginson's interest, playing up her role as a submissive student? Or is she trying to avoid the sting of harsh criticism, and so she poses as a novice? We know she had already written hundreds of poems by this point, and what do we make of that line? I had a terror since September. I could tell to none, and so I sing, as the boy does by the burying ground, because I am afraid. Or what about her near confession when? She states her companions are hills, the sundown, and her dog, because they are better than beings, because they know but do not tell. Tell, what? No doubt Higginson thought these same questions, and this may have been Emily's ploy all along, to seduce him with mysteries and curiosities. There are few things as compelling to an intelligent mind as a mystery. And her ploy worked a charm. These two letters initiated a correspondence between the two of them that would last for years. They sent letters back and forth. The tone of Emily's writing changed, 
they grew more comfortable with each other. In a letter from June 1862, Higginson must have suggested Emily delay publishing her poetry, to which she no doubt took offense. She responded, I smile when you suggest that I delay to publish, that being foreign to my thought as firmament to fin. If fame belonged to me, I could not escape her. In another letter, Higginson must have been too critical of her verses because he received this response. You think my gait spasmodic. I am in danger, sir. You think me uncontrolled. I have no tribunal. In a letter from July of 1862, she responds to Higginson's request that she send him a photo, perhaps an indication that he is developing affection for her. Emily responds, Could you believe me without? I had no portrait now, but am small like the wren, and my hair is bold like the chestnut burr, and my eyes like the sherry in the glass that the guest leaves. Would this do just as well? It is like Emily is seducing him through prose and verse, drawing him in. If Higginson was becoming enamored by this mysterious young woman, could you really blame him? Even in her retorts, Emily made a point to draw him in again by showing her gratitude. Your letter gave no drunkenness, because I tasted rum before. Yet I have had few pleasures so deep as your opinion. And if I tried to thank you, my tears would block my tongue. In August of 1870, Thomas Wentworth Higginson makes a trip to finally meet Emily, for the first time, at her home in Amherst. Over the years, he had extended an invitation to her to join him at literary gatherings in Boston, which she declined. But finally, the date is set August 15, 1870. Here's Higginson's account of meeting Emily for the first time. A large county lawyer's house, brown brick, with great trees and a garden. I sent up my card. A parlor, dark and cool and stiffish. A few books and engravings and an open piano. A step like a pattering child's in entry, and in glided a little plain woman with two smooth bands of reddish hair and a face a little like bell doves, not plainer, with no good feature, in a very plain and exquisitely clean white pique and a blue net worsted shawl. She came to me with two daylilies which she put in a sort of childlike way into my hand and said, these are my introduction, in a soft, frightened, breathless, childlike voice, and added under her breath, forgive me if I am frightened, I never see strangers and hardly know what I say. But she talked soon and thenceforward continuously and deferentially, sometimes stopping to ask me to talk instead of her but readily recommencing." Unquote. Higginson's account is one of the rare few we have that describes Emily to us as she was in person. 
It seems the meeting was a bit awkward and tense. He later confessed that he had never before been with anyone who drained his nerve power so much. There is no doubt that this was a pivotal moment for Emily. It was a long-awaited meeting with someone who had read her rare work and recognized her talent. He later mentions that it was a remarkable experience quite equaling my expectation. But the question is, did it equal Emily's? There is something she wanted from this relationship. I don't think she wanted romance. She wanted validation. She hoped that through approaching him with charms and mysterious airs, Higginson would come around to truly see her genius, that his keen mind would notice the visionary spark hidden in her verses. It is clear she took offense to his critiques, that in reality, she was not as submissive as she presented herself. She suspected her own greatness and was offended by his inadequacy to perceive it. Sadly, Higginson only realized the scope of Emily's genius after she died in 1886. And it was only then when her fascicles, overflowing with hundreds of poems, were discovered and her genius shared. One has to wonder, if Emily had presented those same booklets to Higginson when they met in person in 1870, would he have recognized it then? Would he have understood the scope and depth of her mind? Or would he have simply written it off as an eccentricity of this enigmatic girl? It's hard to say. But he did at least try to correct this mistake. Higginson helped to publish the first volume of Emily's poetry in 1890, four years after her death. Although with a caveat, he edited her poems to suit the norms of the time, something which would have clearly gone against Emily's wishes. Still, we should give him some credit. With that said, there was one person who recognized Emily's genius during her lifetime. It was her closest friend, Susan Gilbert. Chapter 3 Open me carefully. Emily and Susan were born only nine days apart, and when they first met in 1850, they became quick friends. Emily had a kind of crush on Susan because Susan was unlike the usual townsfolk of Amherst. For one, she mostly wore black and rarely smiled. She was also incredibly well-read, she shared many of Emily's interests, and Susan had an appreciation for all the newest developments in poetry, philosophy, and writing. Their friendship grew quickly, becoming more and more affectionate 
They were both in their early 20s, and in those beginning stages of their relationship, it seems like a passion developed. No one can truly say if this passion took the form of a love affair between Emily and Susan. It certainly sounds like it did from their letters, or perhaps it was a passion for the closeness of their bond. But one thing is for certain. In their letters, we meet a very different Emily, one we haven't encountered yet in her poetry or in her Higginson letters. In February 1852, Emily writes to Susan. It's a sorrowful morning, Susie. The wind blows and it rains. Into each life some rain must fall. And I hardly know which falls fastest, the rain without or within. Oh, Susie, I would nestle close to your warm heart and never hear the wind blow or the storm beat again. Is there any room there for me? Or shall I wander away, all homeless and alone? Thank you for loving me, darling. And will you love me more if ever you come home? It is enough, dear Susie. I know I shall be satisfied. But what can I do towards you? Dearer you cannot be, for I love you so already that it almost breaks my heart. Perhaps I can love you anew every day of my life, every morning and evening. Oh, if you will let me, how happy I shall be. The precious billet, Susie, I am wearing the paper out, reading it over and over. But the thoughts can't wear out if they try. Thanks to our father, Susie, Vinnie and I talked of you all last evening long and went to sleep mourning for you. And pretty soon I waked up saying, Precious treasure, thou art mine. And there you were all right, my Susie. And I hardly dared to sleep, lest someone steal you away. Never mind the letter, Susie. You have so much to do. Just write me every week one line and let it be, Emily, I love you. And I will be satisfied. Your own, Emily. There is no denying it. This sounds like a love letter. And there's a lot more of them. Once you read several of these, it's hard to interpret it in any other way. Both Emily and Susan were about 21 years old at this time. Susan was spending time away from Amherst that year in Maryland, pursuing her teaching career. It may be that the distance between them heightened Emily's affections for Susan. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, after all. Or their relationship could have genuinely been this intimate and deeply felt. She signs the margin of another letter sent that same month. Who loves you most and loves you best and thinks of you when others rest? Tis Emily. On a Sunday afternoon in April, she writes. So sweet and still. And thee, O oh Susie, what need I more to make my heaven whole? Sweet hour, blessed hour, to carry me to you and bring you back to me, long enough to snatch one kiss and whisper goodbye again. These are passionate displays of affection. The words, they leap off the page with fire and emotion. 
we know that Susan wrote back to Emily. And in Emily's letters, we see these little snippets of times they shared, hinted at by Emily. And even in these most intimate of letters, there seems to be the inclination to contain secrets. In another letter from February 1852, Emily mentions, Always when the sun shines, and always when it storms, and always, always, Susie, we are remembering you, and what else besides remembering, I shall not tell you, because you know. In these letters, Emily is stripped of the measured and economic prose of the Higginson letters. Here, she lays herself bare. Her emotions are conveyed in their raw vulnerability, without editing, as they stream forth. We don't know what Susan wrote back to her, but according to Emily's adorations, her references to the letters Susan sent, and the delight they gave her, we must assume they matched or encouraged this level of affection. In a letter from June of 1852, Emily mentions that she has not seen Susan in almost a year, but that the thought she will be seeing her soon fills her with tears. Maddie was here last evening, and we sat on the front door stone and talked about life and love and whispered our childish fancies about such blissful things. The evening was gone so soon. And I walked home with Maddie beneath the silent moon and wished for you and heaven. You did not come, darling, but a bit of heaven did, or so it seemed to us, as we walked side by side and wondered if that great blessedness, which may be ours sometime, is granted now to some. Those unions, my dear Susie, by which two lives are one, this sweet and strange adoption, wherein we can but look and are not yet admitted, how it can fill the heart and make it gang wildly, beating, how it will take us one day and make us all its own, and we shall not run away from it, but lie still and be happy. Emily's daydreams of a time when Susan and her could be together did come true, although likely not in the way she had hoped. At the same time that Emily was writing these letters to Susan, Emily's brother, Austin, was also writing to her. It was like they were both courting the same woman, though there were no hard feelings between them, and they both saw it with good humor. It must have been a strange position for Susan to find herself in, effectively receiving love letters from a brother and sister of the same family. Eventually, Susan married Austin. It is hard to say how much this union was from affection and how much from convenience. This was unfortunately an issue many women of that time period wrestled with, due to the severely limited prospects to support themselves. Even if Susan and Emily felt deep affection for each other, this was still the 1800s. A woman's financial security and stability came from marrying a man who was financially stable. Susan was having difficulty getting steady teaching work, and she came from a family with its own issues. She was orphaned at an early age. 
Her mother died from consumption when Susan was only seven, so she was raised by her extended family. The Gilberts, as a family, were far removed from the distinguished place the Dickinsons held in Amherst. But one clear positive in her marriage with Austin was they moved into a house on the large Dickinson family property, right next to Emily's. Susan and Emily would live walking distance from each other for the next 30 years. Emily would attend Susan's social parties. Emily would play the quirky aunt to Sue's three children, doting on them often. And she would be there as her confidant when Susan's marriage began crumbling. And all this time, they would continue exchanging letters in private. There was a path that connected their homes through the evergreen trees, where they would briefly meet and hand each other a letter folded in three, which could be easily hidden inside of a dress. Emily called it a little path just wide enough for two who love. And although they were a stone's throw from each other, Emily would still write Susan letters. Letters she would send through the postal service. Was it to maintain an air of privacy? Or a convenience during Susan's busy life of being a homemaker and a mother of three? Or did Emily just love the ritual of sending an intimate letter? It's hard to say. As the years rolled on, Susan's responsibilities left less and less time to engage Emily with the depth of emotion and devotion that she likely craved. But regardless, even as Emily became her most reclusive when she reached the age of 50, denying to see any visitors, denying to leave the grounds of the Dickinson estate, she would still write Susan letters and poems and short devotional verses. When Susan and Austin were sick in the spring of 1880, Emily wrote her that Susan lives is a universe which neither going nor coming could displace. At another time, perhaps after Emily denied a visit from Sue, she writes her, Susan is a vast and sweet sister, and Emily hopes to deserve her, but not now. Contrary to the narrative presented by Emily's first biographers, these small personal snippets of paper show she was not entirely cut off from the world. She had Sue. These snippets show that Emily and Sue would still meet face to face, and when the opportunity was missed, Emily would write to her regretfully, as in another snippet. Susan, I would have come out of Eden to open the door for you if I had known you were there. You must knock with a trumpet, as Gabriel does, whose hands are as small as yours. I knew he knocked and went away. I didn't dream that you did, Emily. And then, even mixed in with references to common daily tasks, are examples of Emily's devotions. In this one, Emily mentions a loaf of bread she baked for Susan's son, but first showers her with affection. 
It was like a breath from Gibraltar to hear your voice again, Sue. Your impregnable syllables need no prop to stand. The loaf for Ned I will send Wednesday evening, unless he prefer before. If he would, let him whisper to me, Emily. And there are so many countless more like these, which Susan saved. That is the remarkable bit, isn't it? That Susan saved over 250 of these letters and personal messages from Emily. I don't think she was saving it for us. That was Emily's ambition. Susan was saving these for herself. We do not have Susan's letters to confirm the depth of her affection. We do not have her words, but we do have her actions. And actions speak louder than words. Sue saved every letter, every poem, and every scrap of paper from Emily. Who does that? Upon Emily's death in May of 1886, it wasn't her sister or brother who wrote her obituary. It was Sue. It was published in the Springfield Republican and is one of the few writings we have of Susan and her thoughts on Emily. And perhaps most remarkably, when Emily passed away and the awful formality of the funeral of their dear Emily was being arranged, it was Susan who prepared her body. She washed her and clothed her in a white dress for the open coffin ceremony with violets around her neck. Show me eternity and I will show you memory both in one package lain and lifted back again. Be Sue while I am Emily. Be next what you have ever been. Infinity. Chapter 4. The Illness
throughout Emily's poems and letters, there is frequently the passing mention of an illness. At times, it is plainly said, as in her second letter to Higginson, when she says, Mr. Higginson, your kindness claimed earlier gratitude, but I was ill and write today from my pillow. In other times, we see it described as a threat without a name, and sometimes even a terror. I had a terror since September. I could tell to none. And so I sing, as the boy does by the burying ground, because I am afraid. You could say the first one is an example of a physical illness, and the second an example of something psychological. But if we put together all of her poems and letters, filled with all their references and metaphors, then we take her family history, making note of the confirmed cases of genetic illnesses, and then we take into account the time period she lived in and the clues we have regarding specific moments in her life, well, a picture begins to form. What does that picture imply? To a common observer, such a task would be impossible. It requires more than a cursory glance at her work. It requires investigative journalism into every facet of her writing and life. Curiously, one author has done this, Lyndall Gordon. She wrote the book Lives Like Loaded Guns, which beautifully traces the intimate details of Emily's life, including the personal dramas of her closest family. But even more than that, Gordon dedicates one chapter to building a convincing case for the illness Emily Dickinson likely had. Epilepsy. Epilepsy is now understood to be a neurological disorder, although the Epilepsy Foundation also continues to classify it as a disease. It is characterized by unpredictable seizures resulting from an overactivity or abnormal activity in the brain's neural structures. When someone who suffers from epilepsy has a seizure, they often fall to the floor and begin to shake. Their body and limbs convulse and spasm uncontrollably, and they are unresponsive. Seizures generally last between 30 seconds to two minutes. Some other symptoms include frothing of saliva at the mouth, teeth clenching, and loss of bladder or bowel control. As you can imagine, anyone who suffers from epilepsy is likely embarrassed about it. A person's mind is often foggy after a seizure. They may feel sleepy or confused, and even their ability to speak or think clearly can take some time to recover. After a seizure, recovery of your full mental capacity takes anywhere from an hour or two to several days. It is different for each person, and it depends on the type of seizure they had. There is no cure for epilepsy, but there are medications and other strategies. In the 1800s, people called seizures fits or throws. Back then, even less was known about this disorder, and, as you can imagine, it was surrounded by countless taboos and superstitions. In the book, Lives Like Loaded Guns, Chapter 5, Lyndall Gordon writes, 
Collectively, in her poems, there's a history of a mechanism breaking down, a body dropping. In one of her clock poems, when the ticking stops, it will not stir for doctors. In A Clock Stopped, it's a clock with miniature figures who appear on the hour. The figures dangle, hunched in pain, like puppets bowing. Not the clock on the mantle, Dickinson says, pressing her point. It's the body that seizes up. Agony is her truth in a poem about telling the truth. She says, Men do not sham convulsion nor simulate a throw. Could her volcanoes and earthquakes, the unexploded bomb in her bosom, and her life as loaded gun repeat this truth? The capitals, like the destructive nature of her existence, are deliberate. Convulsion with a capital C, throw with a capital T. Transport is taught by throw. Even without her explicitness, we hear the jolting rhythms of poems with protracted breaths between spasms of words. Their spacing is unprecedented as a verbal performance. To the poet's professional contemporaries, the performance was bizarre, spasmodic was the verdict of the Boston critic Higginson on the first batch of poems she sent him, uncontrolled. These are the words she shoots back in her deadpan reply on June 7th, 1862. You think my gait spasmodic. I am in danger, sir. You think me uncontrolled. I have no tribunal. Unquote. Unlike any of her contemporaries, her poems contain moments of reflection on disturbing inner occurrences, specifically in her brain, occurrences which are seemingly outside of her control. In the opening line of one poem, she says, I felt a funeral in my brain. Like many metaphors, this is open to interpretation. She may have been referring to depression. Yet still, there is more. In another poem, she writes... I felt a cleaving in my mind, as if my brain had split. I tried to match it, seam by seam, but could not make them fit. The thought behind I strove to join, unto the thought before, but sequence reveled out of sound, like balls upon a floor. She uses vivid and disturbing imagery here, the brain splitting, the act of trying to sew it back together, as she says, seam by seam, and the failure of that attempt. Then the confusion that follows, which she describes in the second stanza, as she tries to join her thoughts together, but they can't be joined, likening them to billiard balls drifting chaotically on the floor. Is this what the onset of a seizure feels like? Or is it the confusion of its aftermath? The book, Lives Like Loaded Guns, goes on. Traditionally, epilepsy has carried a stigma. In the Middle Ages, it was seen as a form of demonic possession, and seizures played a part in convicting witches. In the 19th century, epileptics were sometimes incarcerated in asylums, and the more advanced asylums segregated them, the sight of them being too disturbing for the mentally ill. 
females especially provoked genteel aversion as they broke the rules of ladylike control. Families, therefore, colluded to keep the condition a lifelong secret. Dickinson's poetry speaks of a reticent volcano. Though its explosiveness would be relevant to her condition, the volcano's still temperate facade compels her imagination even more. In Emily's youth, the sickness was described in violent terms. The victim falls as if hit by gunshot, followed by spasmodic throes. Fingers are clenched and eyes suffused with moisture swivel. If this, at least in part, is what was secret, the conditions of Dickinson's life make sense. Sickness is a more sensible reason for seclusion than disappointed love. A seizure can happen with little warning, about a minute, too short a time to take cover. This is why those who keep the condition secret would fear to go out, even to join callers in the parlor. During the annual summer commencement, when Mr. Dickinson, as college treasurer, entertained visitors at home, Emily would emerge, walk swiftly through the crowd, and disappear. What seemed eccentric was simply dread. Marriage for epileptics was discouraged, and some American states prohibited it by law. A leading London authority, Edward Seaving, in 1858, stated the reasons in his book on epilepsy, writing, the excitement of the marital act might cause fits in those susceptible. Marriage was discouraged also for the sake of the partner and potential offspring." Unquote. Another point to consider is what causes a seizure in someone who suffers from epilepsy? There are apparently triggers. Some of the common triggers are a lack of sleep, stress, illness, fever, and bright lights or flashing patterns. This calls to mind a few details from Emily's habits. Her propensity for staying up late into the night to work on her writing, possibly something that exacerbated her epilepsy, or the frequency with which she mentions being ill in her letters. Maybe the fevers of physical illness also complicated her condition. There has always been a misconception with seizures that they are brought on by overstimulation of the mind, by thinking too much. This brings to my mind a passing phrase in one of Emily's letters to Higginson, when she says, And father, too busy with his briefs to notice what we do, he buys me many books, but begs me not to read them, because he fears they joggle the mind. Joggle the mind. Could Mr. Dickinson have been worried that Emily's voracious appetite for reading could be a trigger for her seizures? something that might joggle her mind to fits. In the book, The History of Epileptic Therapy, page 134, the author explains, since reading can lead to changes in the brain, there was a belief that reading excited the brain in a way that prompted attacks in those who were susceptible. Unquote. This is obviously a misconception from the 1800s, but regardless, it informed people's behavior. For example, a strange occurrence in mid-April of 1848. Emily is away at college. 
A family friend returns to Amherst after visiting her and informs the Dickinsons that Emily has been ill all winter. Her brother Austin leaves at once to bring her home. The book Lives Like Loaded Guns goes on. Protesting and in tears, she was hauled away from college and kept at home, an invalid for a whole month. Every day a physician came to examine her and every day her father dosed her in his forceful way. What made Emily ill? Why did the physician come back so frequently? In the spring of 1848, when she was 17, she joked about a fading cough intimidated by the force of Mr. Dickinson's dosings. Yet a cough sounds too slight to warrant her father's alarm. The poet, as an adult, was not tubercular. On any evidence we have, in a place rife with small-town gossip, no whisper of consumption follows her. When Emily is removed from college at the age of 17, there's a gap in the record surrounded by questionable facts. Her tears and pleas when Austin comes for her show her resisting her family's fear. Though under other circumstances, she's glad to go home. Worth noting, too, her sickness does not incapacitate her from studying at home as proved by her performance in the examinations of the following term. Unquote. And yet, there is more. Epilepsy is genetic. So, is there anyone in the Dickinson family tree that also suffered from the same condition? Yes, we can confirm two people. Her cousin, Zabina, and Emily's own nephew, Ned, who lived next door. In the case of Zabina, he was a well-read man who lived a seemingly normal life, working in stores and reading Latin and English literature. He was engaged to a 19-year-old woman from a wealthy family when, at the age of 30, he inexplicably began to suffer from an unnamed illness that caused him bouts of paralysis and mental absences. The wedding was called off. Lives Like Loaded Guns goes on. When Emily, aged 11, heard that Sabina, aged 32, had bitten his tongue in the course of a fit, secrecy was not preserved, not in the family. The word fit was in the air in 1842, and an alert child picked it up. It's impossible to know if the fit was epileptic or caused by some other chronic condition. What is certain is that it was not a fatal condition. From his late 20s until his 70s, Zabino rarely left home, and therefore needed that sort of support in which one member of the family puts her life at the service of another. Zabina's sister Harriet did this. He didn't marry, and neither did his sister. Unquote. A strange correlation here. Emily Dickinson never married, and neither did her sister. Lavinia. And another clue. When Emily is pulled from her studies by her father and kept at home in 1848, she receives a long letter from Zabina. Could he have been trying to offer advice or moral support from a place of personal experience? His letter doesn't survive. Emily replies to him. Her letter doesn't survive either. As far as we know, 
There is no indication they were correspondents at any other time. The other close member in Emily's family to suffer from epilepsy is Ned, the son of Austin and Susan, the son of Emily's brother and Emily's teenage crush. This seems to imply that the DNA of the Dickinson side of the family carried this recessive gene. Lives like loaded guns goes on. Young Edward Ned Dickinson was born to Austin and Sue in 1861. At the age of 15, in mid-February 1877, Ned had a fit to his family's dismay. It seems he went to bed as well as usual Sunday night, a caller was told. In the night was taken with a fit, followed by another on Monday morning, while the doctor was present. Dr. Fisk feared the fit was linked to Ned's weak heart, the result of rheumatic fever in 1874. By the following day, the caller reports, the family, though anxious, began to think the trouble might not be so serious. Emily wrote to her nephew after a few weeks, hoping he'd recovered, but the fits returned. Unquote. The evidence seems to be mounting. Something uncommon was happening in the Dickinson homestead, something that the most distinguished family in Amherst of the 1800s had every reason to keep private. Whatever Emily was afflicted with was being treated seriously enough that the Dickinsons sought consultation from the most prominent doctors in Massachusetts. When Emily was staying with her aunt in Boston in September 1851, she consulted with Dr. James Jackson, a professor of Harvard Medical School known for often being the last resort in chronic cases all over New England. He famously wrote the book Letters to a Young Physician in 1855, which contains a chapter on epilepsy. He was known for being compassionate and understanding regarding both the physical and psychological difficulties patients were dealing with. Lives Like Loaded Guns continues. Dr. Jackson said, I am convinced that all the active interference during the fit is useless and may be injurious. When he faced a patient who had, in his words, a liability to the epileptic paroxysm, he would put the question to himself, can this liability be removed? Sympathetic though he was to the distress of the patient and the family's need to overcome this dreadful liability, the answer had to be no. He warned against experiment. Once the disease had begun, there was no stopping its course. The best practice was to avoid whatever might aggravate or prolong attacks, agitation, fright, fatigue, and excitement. He preferred to speak positively about devising a mode of existence that would mitigate and comfort the suffering. In such a situation, he believed, the taste and inclination of the patient should be indulged. Patients left his rooms ready to meet trials bravely. It could have been Dr. Jackson who persuaded Emily Dickinson to accept the prospect of seclusion and singleness in the hope of doing something with the intellectual and creative gifts that this doctor had the capacity to discern. Here was just the person to help this young woman devise the way of life to which she adapted 
with such extraordinary results. Dr. Jackson's authority would have weighed with Mr. Dickinson, who agreed to relieve his daughter of the household tasks and empty social gatherings she loathed. Instead, he indulged the priority she wished to give to poetry and promoted mild exertion in the fresh air, daily walks with her dog Carlo, and her taste for gardening. For her sake, Mr. Dickinson added a conservatory in a corner between the dining room and the library, with indoor access through the library, so that she might continue to garden during the winter. Unquote. Dr. Jackson also prescribed Emily a medicine, which was to be filled at a drugstore in Boston, where they were staying at the time. Emily wrote to Austin on October 7th that she had tried Dr. Jackson's prescription and found herself better for it. She then asks that he refill it at three or four times the quantity, as it benefit me much. Lives Like Loaded Guns continues. This bit of paper, which survives, is a crucial clue to Dr. Jackson's diagnosis. What he prescribed was half an ounce of glycerine diluted with two and a half ounces of water. Glycerine has many uses, but one of the medical uses in those days was for epilepsy. In a 19th century listing of medical uses of glycerine in Amherst's Jones Library, there is a recommendation for epilepsy. Dissolve half an ounce of chloral, a sedative, and 25 drops of peppermint essence for flavor in four ounces of glycerine." Unquote. The final odd detail here is that when Emily returned to Amherst, she continued to use the prescription for two years, needing it to be periodically refilled. But it was never filled at a neighborhood drugstore in Amherst. Despite there being an adequate one in the town, the prescription was always requested by hand in Boston. Just for some perspective, a car ride today from Amherst to Boston is two hours. A bike ride is nine hours. I can't imagine how long a horse-drawn carriage ride would take, but that is how Austin or Mr. Dickinson would have traveled to pick it up. It implies the prescription covered a secret worth the inconvenience. And yet, there's more. Several similar visits throughout the following years to eminent doctors with respected opinions on epilepsy treatments, and several other examples of prescriptions that match with the known treatments of the mid-1800s for seizures and epilepsy. Some of these consultations were done under the guise of treatments for eye or vision ailments. One odd side note, though, Emily never wore eyeglasses. But it is known that the most minor forms of epileptic seizures involve vision impairments, seeing lights, blind spots, and distortions in the shapes of objects. Could the commonly accepted eye ailment that many biographers mention actually be a cover that the Dickinsons used for epilepsy? At times in Emily's poems, it seems like she tells us herself or comes desperately close in her own way. Maybe that's why some of these poems were never shared with anyone. She takes the affliction 
the seizures, and weaponizes it into a metaphor, a spasm, a throw, a fit. She wrote the following poem when she was 43. While we were fearing it, it came, but came with less of fear, because that fearing it so long had almost made it fair. There is a fitting, a dismay, a fitting, a despair. Tis harder knowing it is due than knowing it is here. The trying on the utmost, the morning it is new, is terribler than wearing it a whole existence through. Chapter 5 Solitude It is 1863. You are in the Dickinson homestead on the first floor. The house is silent, save for some birds chirping in the garden. The aroma of freshly baked bread from a morning meal fills the air. A certain slant of sunlight carves a hard line from the windows to the wooden floor. Any other home, this still would be empty, but not the homestead. You make your way up the hardwood stairs. Ornate William Morris wallpaper decorates the space, lifting the quietude of the homestead into a complex elegance. Here, on the second floor, is the door to Emily's bedroom. It's open just a hair's width, enough to see the bright afternoon glow that illuminates the floor. You touch the doorknob and give it a gentle push. The room is still, except for a figure in white, sitting at a small square writing table near the window. Emily is working, her mind in another world. She has not noticed the door, nor heard your intrusion. You crouch down and continue, watching. It is in solitude that she completes her masterpieces, sending them forward into the future. She is always writing to us, yet we can never write to her. And it is this same solitude that is the common thread in all of creativity. Nikola Tesla, Leonardo da Vinci, Frida Kahlo, Salvador Dali, Robert Johnson, all working in solitude. There is a stable peace in that place, but it is also alive with possibility. Without distractions, without interferences, the creative mind is able to harness its full attention to one task. Emily saw this state as a sacred place where phrases, rhymes, structures, and metaphors could be hammered into shape as if on a blacksmith's anvil, where emotions and memories could be married to verse in the soul's crucible. Daily life itself becomes sublimated through that white heat.
Dare you see a soul at the white heat? Then crouch within the door. Red is the fire's common tent. But when the vivid ore has vanquished flame's conditions, it quivers from the forge, without a color but the light of unanointed blaze. Least village boasts its blacksmith, whose anvil's even ring stands symbol for the finer forge that soundless tugs within. Refining these impatient oars with hammers and with blaze, until the designated light repudiate the forge. More than any of her poems, this one is describing the creative process at work. First, she dares us to watch. Dare you see a soul at the white heat? In the art of making weapons or tools of steel, the white heat is the hottest point, hotter than red or even blue, a point at which the steel becomes soft and malleable. She wants us to watch, but she wants us to keep a safe distance, then crouch within the door. By the third stanza, she reminds us that even the least village boasts a blacksmith, and the anvil's ringing reminds her of her own creative forge within. We should remember that just as every village needs a maker of tools, it also needs a maker of poetry and makers of stories, of music, and of art. Her fourth stanza calls to mind the struggle of true creative work, refining these impatient oars work of genius does not come without struggle. Ideas can feel like they have a mind of their own. They may need to be hammered down, melted, chiseled, and coerced into perfection until they surpass their humble origins, ready to face the world. There is so much to be learned from Emily Dickinson's story, especially when we try to understand her. If it was epilepsy or any other illness that drove her into seclusion, then we can see her like a Frida Kahlo figure who was forged into greatness by the cauldron of fate. In Frida Kahlo's case, her tragedy was an accident that nearly made her an invalid for life, but which opened the opportunity for a private devotion to painting. In Emily Dickinson's case, it was not an accident, but her genetics and circumstance. As the author Lyndall Gordon states, DNA can be a form of tragedy, unquote. And through the demands that her seclusion brought on, Emily's greatness as a writer was given the space to blossom, unimpeded, until it could not be denied. The message seems clear. Take your weakness and make it your strength. Whatever at first glance seems to be holding you back, the thing that appears to be an impossible hurdle, what if you can flip it on its head? What if in accepting it, you reframe it as a strength? Emily did not wither in her solitude. 
She reached her greatness because of it. After over a century, we still continue to crouch within the door with eager anticipation to see the master at work. Emily Dickinson has left it open for us, just a crack. She invites us in through enigma and verse, and so we gaze in bewilderment, like children staring into the white heat of an eclipse. The Enigma of Emily Dickinson. What a journey. I hope you enjoyed it. I can't even tell you how many hours I've spent reading Emily's poetry, her personal letters and biographies about her. At the outset, I could not fathom how many layers there would be to her story and, of course, the quality of her work. I assumed one feature-length episode would suffice, but here we are, and I honestly still feel like there is more to say about her. I still feel like I had to cut out some of my favorite poems, just for the sake of structure. I have this stack of my favorite Dickinson poems that just keeps growing. As I continue to read her lesser-known works and letters, I, I keep stumbling on new favorites. I suppose it's a good problem to have. In the end, though, I feel I have done my part in convincing you to explore her work yourself, to find those gems, and likely your stack of favorites will look very different than mine. You can view all of the poems featured in these two episodes on my site. Just go to mjdorian.com forward slash Emily. That's M-J-D-O. R-I-A-N dot com forward slash E-M-I-L-Y. I would love to hear which ones are your favorites. Let's compare notes. You can reach out to me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, at MJ Dorian, or on our Creative Codex subreddit. 
One regret on some of the concessions I have had to make is I didn't spend any time talking about her startling and thought-provoking death poems, such as Safe in Their Alabaster Chambers, or the poem I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died, or the countless others, and they are all so good. I may just have to do a mini-episode about Emily's death poems. Yeah, that would be pretty dark, but I think you guys can handle it. <laughs> I may be done with Emily, but she is certainly not done with me. Or you. I'd like to take this moment to give a big thank you to the voice of Emily Dickinson in these episodes, Francis Lavette. Francis, you were able to bring this vision to life, and you masterfully tightroped on that line between vulnerability and strength. Thank you. I've heard from many fans of the show since the last episode, and the verdict is resoundingly clear. You brought these episodes to life. For those listening, go follow Frances, her projects, and photography on her Instagram, at Lady Lazarus. That's Lady Lazarus, with a period after each letter, and an underscore in between the two words. Or type l.a.d.y underscore l.a.z.a.r.u.s. underscore. You can also click a link to her account in this episode's notes. This was the first time that I collaborated with someone on one of these episodes, and it was a wonderful experience. I'm proud of the result. If Emily is listening, I hope we have done her justice. Justice she was deprived of in her lifetime. If you'd like to learn more about Emily, I highly recommend two books, Lives Like Loaded Guns by Lyndall Gordon, which I quoted throughout both episodes, and which is the source of the theory that Emily had epilepsy. Gordon has written a fantastic book that's filled with the kind of prose that is most fitting for the life of a poet. If you'd like to read something a bit more academic, I would recommend The Life of Emily Dickinson by Richard Sewell. This is often considered the first definitive biography of Emily's life, and also paints a detailed picture of those people closest to her, though it can be a little more dry than lives like loaded guns. If you have gotten this far, it's time to buy a book of Emily's poetry. The one I personally recommend is called Emily Dickinson's Poems as She Preserved Them, edited by Kristen Miller. Unlike most other collections of her poetry, this rare book presents her poems in the order that Emily bound them in her fascicles. So you can read them in the way she intended them to be discovered. And then, also, pick up a copy of the book, Open Me Carefully. It is the complete collection of all of Emily's personal letters she wrote to Susan Gilbert, all of which Susan saved. So significant are Emily's letters to Susan that they are considered part of her body of work. To read only her poetry without her letters only gives you half of her being. That's why in this episode, we made a point to share those with you. If you'd like to watch a documentary, I would suggest two of them, both available online. 
One is by a company called the Annenberg Learner. That's A-N-N-E-N-B-E-R-G. So just Google Annenberg Learner feature on Emily Dickinson. The other one is available on Amazon, and it is by the producers of the film A Quiet Passion. The documentary is actually really wonderful and artfully done. That is called This Is My Letter to the World. If you enjoy what we do here on Creative Codex, please consider becoming a patron of our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. Every little bit goes a long way to helping this show grow. Part of that can go toward advertising, but it also includes the ability to hire staff, get episodes produced faster, and pay for featured voice artists. For example, I was able to compensate Frances for her incredible voice work on these two episodes because of the funds provided by Patreon supporters in the last few months. So thank you to everyone who has supported Creative Codex in the past and everyone who might in the future. Side note, as a patron of the show, you also gain access to all the exclusive Creativity Tip episodes, as well as original art and merch giveaways. Upcoming giveaways include the cover art of the first Emily Dickinson episode and Creative Codex mugs and tote bags. Yeah, I know you want a tote bag. I have it. It's pretty sturdy. All that and more at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash mjdorian. Shout out to the patrons of Creative Codex, Chris, Nika, V. I appreciate you. Alex Payne, Andy Rogers, Blake Huggins, James Schenner, Jay Booth, Logan Kshevichki, Timothy Kukharchuk. You guys rock. Adil, Anudi, Aaron, Jimmy D, Jay Stacks, Michael Lloyd, Owen McCatier, Zuko's World, and DVM. Thank you for your support. And now, I need to take a nap. Or, better yet, a good night's sleep. Then, back to work. As Emily says, a soul at leisure begs for work. Upcoming episodes include a guided meditation, as well as a very interesting and entertaining leap back into Salvador Dali's mind. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay tuned. This has been Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. Until next time, remember, Emily did not wither in her solitude. She reached her greatness because of it. Take your weakness and make it your strength. Thank you. Thank you.